Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm David Getson. The 1920s generally, and the Bauhaus in particular, were keenly focused on examining a cyclical historical sentiment, the denial or avoidance of which had become impossible. Looking back at the long swaths of history before them, it seemed as though systems of civilization went through a period of growth, then declined before a new, distinct civilization could arise from these dregs to flourish and sunder in turn. Many after World War I perceived themselves to be at the crux of a cultural threshold where, as one world order whiled away, another was developing, or even beginning to stir. Though it was easy for people then, and now, to seek the signs of this transformation in things like innovative methods of production, radical forms of expression, or new and alternative lifestyles, this episode's look at the pedagogy of the Bauhaus's introductory course by Johannes Itten reveals that, sometimes, the deepest wellspring for new cultural development can be someplace as simple as a kindergarten. According to the amateur historian and innate morphologist of history that was Oswald Spengler, during its summer of prosperity, or through the winter of its fade, a civilization's values, forms, and practices tend to experience a consolidation. The later the phase of a civilization, the more fretful creativity and change become, and, in this context, instruction by imitation and memorization goes through a defensive resurgence to preserve the spent civilization's template. When a culture is born, the inverse happens, as there can be no top-down enforcement or rote learning of what is not fully developed. In the early springtime of existence, ideas of a culture's intuitive openness to exploration and the emancipation of the individual's intuition take on new strength. As European modernism began to sweep into public awareness in the United States, it was with knowing reference that Frank Lloyd Wright exclaimed, Our people, including our architects, are very ignorant of architecture, and that the new modernism may be good kindergarten for them. In sensing the expression of a nascent culture, Wright was encouraging that the exploratory methods recently applied to the research of childhood should be extended to adult life. It was at this point where inspiration and investigation met within the frame of a newly exotic Western culture that Itten would ground his introductory course at the Bauhaus. Kindergarten as we know it 
has been embedded in education for enough successive generations that it is easy to forget what an extreme departure it once was. Friedrich Froebel, a German pedagogue, developed the basis of what we now think of as normal early childhood education in the 19th century. His main deviation from past practices was to underscore the instructive value of the child's own imagination in discovery and play. The famous Froebel Gifts were a series of educational toys that included cubic, triangular, and spherical blocks. Learning was facilitated not so much by a rote adherence to previously established formulas, but by providing a context where unraveling and inspiration would spark it. Unsurprisingly, the old methods of civilizing children were opposed to this bizarre development. In a ban that lasted from 1851 to 1867, the Prussian Ministry of Education proscribed kindergartens, which were considered to be atheistic and demagogic, and accused of instilling destructive tendencies in the areas of religion and politics. It is worth noting, in passing, that Itten's eventual expulsion from the Bauhaus would be excused by remarkably similar reasoning, relating his teaching methods whether fairly or unfairly, to demagoguery. Kindergarten arrived to the United States with the German immigrants of whom we spoke in episode 14, with the first American kindergarten opening in Watertown, Wisconsin, the state that Wright himself was born in. Many children who would later become architects and artists, Wright, of course, but also Buckminster Fuller, Bauhaus instructors Paul Klee and Vasily Kandinsky and the Dutch painter Piet Mondrian were instructed in the Froebel method. But it was Johannes Itten, trained as an elementary school teacher between 1904 and 1908, who brought the kindergarten to the Bauhaus. Making show of his Froebelian leanings, Itten wrote that, my best students are those who found new ways through their own intuition. Mere outward imitation and repetition of my procedure is without sparking power. I owe my first educational insights to the young, open-minded director of a teacher's college. He showed me that children, in their natural simplicity, can invent amazingly original drawings, stories, and songs. When I first taught in 1908 at the elementary school of a Swiss village, I tried to avoid anything which would disturb the children's naivete. Itten was from an early date confronted by school administrators for his unorthodox methods. Upon concluding his first year of teaching, a school inspector interrogated him as to why his students' notebooks had no corrective marks in them, to which he replied that every correction in an essay has an offensive effect which destroys the child's natural storytelling. Then what about spelling? The inspector countered. 
to which Itten presented him with a separate list, noting all such mistakes. When the notebooks were returned to the students, these mistakes were discussed with the entire class, removing any sense of blame or failure by providing anonymity. The collected errors formed the basis for the class's weekly spelling tests. In this way, the students learned not only from their own mistakes, but from everyone else's, and without being stigmatized for making them. Itten remarked that this method allowed students to spell hundreds of words correctly in a year of instruction. The distinction between traditional rote learning and a bottom-up method focused on unlocking creative potential became central to Itten's approach to teaching and art. Having firm opinions on the matter, he wrote that, Teachers who have studied only the methods of imparting fixed curricula to students are like pharmacists filling prescriptions, not like doctors. When, in 1910, he went from teaching children to studying art in Geneva, he felt that the quality of education was significantly degraded in the context of adult instruction. The ideas of the kindergarten method had not yet extended to art education at the graduate level. When I first studied art in Geneva, art academies everywhere instructed in a medieval manner. The professors showed the students how they worked, and the students imitated the teachers. Those who imitated best were considered prize pupils. Disappointed, I returned to the University of Bern to continue my training as a high school teacher. His disappointment with the academic art world would not, however, keep him from painting for long. In 1912, the now-famous Sonderbund exhibition in Cologne drew him back into the fray, with the show's huge inventory containing hundreds of works by the likes of Van Gogh, Cezanne, Gauguin, Munch, and Picasso. Under the sway of this unprecedented feast for sore eyes, Itten was finally convinced to give up teaching and return to being a painter. Studying in Geneva for a second time, he took a course under Professor Giard, whom he credited with impressing upon him the geometric elements of form and their contrasts. From 1913 to 1916, he managed to avoid the war and was a student in Stuttgart to Adolf Hölzl, a teacher who was far more invested in exploration than in mastery or imitation. It was here that Itten began to develop the ideas on color theory that would become a keystone of his Bauhaus curriculum, and where he met his future colleague, Oskar Schlemmer. At the invitation of a young female student in 1916, he moved to Vienna, a city, in his own words, full of somber tensions where the administrative march to war had been set in motion. To allow himself funding to paint again, he began to teach art classes, and so the two chief strains of his vocation, instruction and painting, 
began to coalesce into the shape of his future career. In the summer of 1919, Alma Mahler Gropius, who was largely responsible for her husband's appointment of Feininger to the Bauhaus faculty, invited Itten to attend a talk that Gropius was giving in Vienna. After seeing Itten's work and that of his students, Gropius proposed to him that he teach at the new school in Weimar. Itten responded by stating that he was particularly attracted by the studios and workshops and the fact that the Bauhaus was still empty so that the new could be built without much tearing down of the old. At this point, Gropius, Feininger, and the sculptor Gerhard Marx were the only faculty present. Arriving from Vienna, he brought 14 of his students with him, which represented a well-timed financial asset to the Bauhaus's bottom line. With these students, a strong, early momentum was established behind Itten, though it would not last, as he was soon met with an energetic counter-reaction by the school's developing internal politics. Itten rapidly observed that, since Gropius was the only architect on the faculty and, being busy with administration, taught no classes, the school placed no real emphasis on design. He resolved to address this vacuum. Reflecting on how the portfolio submissions of prospective students showed much of the imitative nature of their previous training and revealed little of their innate ability or originality, Itten convinced Grofius to allow for new students to be provisionally admitted for one semester. This practice would develop into the introductory course, the curriculum of which we discussed in overview in episode 10. Gropius gave Itten free reign with the structure and content of this semester-long course, and Itten, in turn, established three objectives for himself. First, to unleash the creative powers of his students and teach them to gradually release themselves from dead conventions. Second, to make their choice of career easier by finding out what materials appealed most to them. And third, to convey the fundamental principles of design. Here, what Itten called the objective and subjective problems of form and color were integrated to the practice of the course. Following in the earlier footsteps of the Werkbund and the Kunstgewerbschule, the students were expected to learn a craft and to be trained for future cooperation with industry. In so doing, Itten was joining his own unique approach to education with the process that was familiar to craft school trainees at the time. When we think of a design school today, we don't primarily imagine it as a place for the instruction of an individual craft, though this seemed to be of foremost importance at the Bauhaus in terms of what design school would teach. Familiarity with materials, wood, glass, steel, 
and these being separate disciplines, was a central concern. While we would be currently more inclined to see the materials and accordant skills as complementary aspects within a holistic design, in Itten's three objectives for the introductory course, we can see the sutures of two modes of design instruction being stitched together. Though the prevailing expectation may have been to give students a grounding in craft principles, Itten ushered in a new era of education that focused on abstracted design principles. He acknowledged that he could see a student as a light-dark type, or a rhythmic type, or as a metal, wood, or glass type. Adding, however, that these types were seldom one-dimensional. Usually, individuality is determined by talents in several directions. I accomplished the unlocking of individual power through a definite way of teaching the means of design. It was this concentration on means rather than material ends that would distinguish the early Bauhaus's departure in design education. As with the children he taught in Switzerland, Itten primarily wanted the imagination and creative ability to be first liberated, then strengthened. Only when this was accomplished, he felt, could technical requirements and economic considerations be brought into the equation. Young people who start with market research and practical technical work in mind seldom feel like searching for something really new. Since true creative thought and work can only flow from a creatively untampered individual, Itten defined the school's task as to build the whole man as a creative being, a claim that he needed to argue for again and again in faculty council sessions. Though it could be claimed that, in some ways, his enthusiasm for the building of the creative individual went too far, the political and economic insecurity at the school's inception were very detrimental, and his students were an economic boon before they came to be perceived as a political liability. During the school's first winter term of 1919 to 1920, there were neither tables nor chairs in the Bauhaus classrooms, with the students sitting on bare floors. Itten found it most practical to teach only one morning a week, allowing apprentices to work mostly in their living quarters, with periodic checkups for progress. Things appeared equally open-ended when that semester came to a close, and Itten remarked that, Nobody took care of the fully admitted students who were supposed to enter the workshops. He was left to his own devices in how to assign them work. The Bauhaus had no course in architecture, and Itten was tasked with teaching all the students who had no master assigned to them, including the architects. At Itten's suggestion, Paul Clay, Georg Mucke, and Oskar Schlemmer 
were called to join the Bauhaus, and it was only in the summer of 1921 that the faculty was fully rounded and each of the workshops was assigned a master. Ironically enough, shaping the faculty makeup partly helped marginalize Itten at the school. His initial autonomy, which came as the result of his surfeit of students and the absence of other professors, became curtailed once other, unlike-minded faculty arrived. And the looming economic crisis meant that each of these instructors had to be accountable to the local government that held the purse strings. Sadly, the market research attitude that Itten lamented as an obstacle to creativity was one the Bauhaus needed for survival. Once Itten was released from being all things to all students, though, he took a leap in yet more daring directions that would ultimately undercut him to the point of expulsion. When, in 1921, Paul Clay visited the Bauhaus for his orientation, he was struck by Itten's heterodox methods and wrote to his wife of the unusual, nigh-karate-style classroom activity he had just beheld. After Itten has taken a few walks, he steers towards an easel on which stands a drawing board with layers of scratch paper. He grabs a charcoal. His body rallies as if he were charging himself with electricity, and then he suddenly attacks twice. We see two energetic strokes, vertical and parallel, on the first scratch sheet. The students are asked to do the same. The master checks the work. He makes some of them demonstrate individually. He checks the posture. Then he commands, and beating time later, makes them all do the same exercises standing up. This seems to be intended as a kind of body massage to train the machine for emotional functioning. Then he tells something of the wind, makes some of them stand up and assume the expression of their feelings in wind and storm. He then gives the assignment, representation of a storm. He allows about ten minutes, then checks the results and holds a critique. After the critique, work continues. One sheet after another is ripped off and falls to the floor. Some students work with such force that they squander several sheets at once. Finally, after everybody is somewhat tired, he makes the students of the basic course take the assignment home for further practice. It should be borne in mind that Clay was hardly a conservative school inspector. This was the painter who had ventured to Africa in 1914 because of the quality of the light, where he had proclaimed, Color and I are one. And yet, Itten's practices seemed covered in fringe, even to someone like him. 
The decisive break with the Bauhaus was brought on by Itten's catechistic vegetarianism and devotion to Mazdaznan, a revival of Zoroastrianism that aimed to free the body and mind through breath and chanting exercises. Operating on the rather sensible logic that a cramped arm cannot paint a truly expressive line, Itten insisted that the spirit and body be educated as a prerequisite to the flow of creativity. Clay and others may well have observed Itten with his shaved head and white tunic, sitting on the floor with his students and chanting with closed eyes, while local administrators were expecting that this should be a design school. Itten fought back, but at the cost of his position. He would continue to teach in Berlin and later in America. Though he was ridiculed at the time for using breath exercises in design courses, Reflecting on his career, he wrote in 1963 that, Today, the study of Oriental philosophy is widespread, and many people practice yoga. He was, perhaps, uncomfortably ahead of his time, even by the Bauhaus's advanced standards. His attention to the spiritual and to body and soul as the foundation of creative expression were not, however, incidental, nor was he alone in his concerns. His colleague, Georg Mucke, had come to similar conclusions about the need for spiritual renewal in light of his wartime experiences. Along with many others, Itten gazed into a future with no clear beacons, but with a sturdy inner compass. He wrote, the terrible events and shattering losses of the war had brought chaos and confusion in all fields. Among the students, there were endless discussions and eager searching for a new mental attitude. My attention was drawn to Spengler's book, The Decline of the West. I became conscious that our scientific, technical civilization had come to a critical point. The slogans, Back to Handicraft, or Unity of Art and Technology, did not seem to me to solve the problems. Itten's often daring, sometimes ridiculous, but ever earnest forays into the repurposing of education marked a decisive cultural watershed, in the nature of his theory of forms and color, one can get a qualitative glimpse of the new world system that Spengler's work announced would rise beyond the threshold of the Old West. 